0: Thanks so much for being here today, it was a great time of worship through singing and a great announcement by Martin. Thank you. Martin is one of our elders here. We have an awesome elder board. We're so thankful for them and everything that they do and looking for you to nominate more people there. And now we get to study God's word and continue to worship him through that. So thank you for being here, whether you're in the room right now or online watching from home right now. We're glad that you're here and I hope that you'll enjoy this time of studying God's word together. We're in 1 Timothy. We're walking through this series on 1 Timothy. And honestly, probably most of what I say today, you will forget let's just be honest. Because next week is the big one. Next week is when we get into the verses that talk all about what women can and cannot do in church. And so that's the one you're going to remember. I can say anything I want today and it's not going to matter because next week you're going to be focused on that. But we're still going to do this. And we've got some important stuff to talk about today. It's going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. But do make sure you come back next week. Um, we We held off talking about this. We were going to do this before the pandemic. We held off talking about women in church leadership roles and those sorts of things, because we were just doing a live stream, you know, and and, and it, did, well, it didn't seem like a good idea, and then when we came back, we thought, well, this will be over soon, and we'll all be back together again, and then that didn't happen, and and here we are, and we're still not all back together again. We still have more people watched online than are actually in the room on any given Sunday, and that's okay. We understand. In fact, I, I did this survey this week about the worship services. Many of you filled it out. Thank you, and a good number of you are still watching online from home um, because of the pandemic, so we, we get all of that, but we do need to talk about this, so that's why we're back in First Timothy. Next week, we're going to get into that issue. Today, we've got a different issue to address. It's still going to involve men and women. You're going to love it, but it's in First Timothy chapter 2. Hopefully, you are already there, and at the end of next week, by the way, our elders are going to share a position paper that we have been studying for a couple of years on this issue, so I'm only going to have a certain amount of time to cover the verses in First Timothy that address the issue of women and church leadership, but The paper is really long and really exhaustive and has a lot of phenomenal research in it. So I would encourage you next week to get that and read through that if you want to dig deeper. But let's dig into our text for today. I want to start this way. Ministry life can be a real pain sometimes. It really can. It can be full of all sorts of problems. And nobody knew this better than Timothy. Timothy was a young man when he got hooked up with this guy named Paul, and they started traveling around. He was mentored by Paul. They went to all these different places and planted churches and made disciples and had an amazing time doing this, I am sure. But disciples are people, and people have problems. And the more people you have, the more problems you have, the more complex those problems get. And as they planted these churches, and these churches grew, these churches had problems because these churches were made up of people. And as the churches grew, the problems grew in complexity, and it was more and more difficult to keep up with everything. You, you can imagine you've got this church spread out all over a, a region, and they all kind of view themselves as part of one church, but it's really hard to know for sure when someone is doing something that maybe they shouldn't be doing in the church over here. Maybe they're spreading some false teaching, and over here they're spreading some gossip, and over here they're they're uh, leading people into kind of a faction within the church. And you've got all these different things going on over here, they're arguing, and, and it's hard to keep up with that, especially in a day and age when you don't have good technology, even if you do have technology, it's not easy. But, but you don't have any of that. And so these churches that have grown quite large and regional churches, it's hard to keep track of everything going on. It's just Paul is looking at this church in Ephesus. And he's there with Timothy. They've spent a couple of years there. And he's saying, this church still has so many problems. There's so many challenges in this church, but I got to go. I've got other stuff to do. I've got other churches to plant. And he looks at Timothy and says, Timothy, you're the guy. I want you to be the what we would call the senior pastor of this church. Eventually they would refer to him as a bishop. I want you to be the senior pastor of this church in Ephesus and I want you to help take care of these problems. And Timothy had to be thinking to himself, are you serious? I wanna go with you. I want to go do the fun stuff. I want to go do the, the, the ministry stuff. Where we go around, and we're preaching the gospel to people, and we're seeing people come to Christ, and they're so excited that they, they leave behind all their differences, and they just get along with each other because they just found the gospel, and it's this amazing transformation that happens. They're all united. It's what happens after a few years that's not so fun. When they start to forget about the excitement of the gospel, when they forget about what brought them together, and all of a sudden those differences start to to rear their ugly heads again, and people start to have anger and controversy and friction and division within the church. It doesn't happen right away, but over time, and Paul says, yeah, but I need you to stay in this church in Ephesus and help them deal with these issues. To lead this church, to correct the people that are spreading wrong thinking and wrong teaching, and Timothy stays in Ephesus. But it certainly was not easy. And I have to imagine Timothy, he's thinking, I just wanna do ministry. And I just spend all my time putting out fires. I keep hearing about you know, this group over here that meets in this synagogue and the issue that they have going on. And there's this group that meets in this house church over there. And they're frustrated about this thing. And this other group over here, they're kind of upset at each other. They might split and go to two different houses now. And there's all these problems. And so at some point, Timothy writes back to Paul or sends a messenger to Paul. And he says, here's an update, man. Here's what's going on in this church in Ephesus. There's all kinds of problems. What do you, what do you think? What are you gonna say? And so Paul writes back to Timothy to give his advice and that's why we have this letter. The first, the, the, what we know as the first letter to Timothy. What are some of the problems that he's dealing with? Well, the the men are evidently getting angry with each other over differences of opinion. The women are being influenced by the posh styles of the elite women of Rome. They're dressing up to be more promiscuous and and look like the extravagantly wealthy women of, of Rome that they secretly desire to be. What is happening? here? This is a church that has in some ways gotten off track. Many of these people at one time were passionate about Jesus, When they trusted in him, they put those differences aside. None of that mattered now, and they were all united together. But now, in some ways, unfortunately, the gospel has taken a back seat, and worshiping together isn't enough to keep them united, to keep the peace. And the church has, in many ways, fallen into chaos, because as Jesus puts it in Revelation 2, he says to this church in Ephesus, you have lost your first love. You've gotten away from what matters most distracted by so many less important things. So Paul writes this letter to give encouragement to Timothy because he knows he needs encouragement and to tell him to get back to the basics. Don't get caught up in all the distractions. Call people back to what really matters. In our text for today, he's going to write about worship services in particular, something that can be a little controversial. And so we're going to dig into these verses today. Before we do that, Would you just bow your heads in prayer with me and ask God to give us wisdom? Heavenly Father, this is your word and we treasure it and we love it and we love what you teach us from it, God. And we know that there are some passages in here that can be difficult to understand. In fact, I love what Peter said about Paul's writings when he said, we know that Paul has written some things that are difficult to understand and it's it's true at times, but Lord, that that means we need to study it and we need to wrestle with it and and we need to, to dig into it to understand the truth that is there. Help us to do that today, Lord. Give us wisdom and insight to listen to your word, to understand it, and to rightly apply it to our lives today. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter two. 1 Timothy chapter two, and of course, it'll be on the screen for you as well. We're gonna read through this, and then we're gonna walk through this. So Paul says, first of all, in every place of worship, in verse eight, I want men to pray, with holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. We're going to work through this bit by bit to see if we can uncover what exactly is Paul saying here to Timothy because there are some paths we could take that are not the right way to think about this. The first thing I want you to notice is the setting. What are we talking about here? Where is where is Paul thinking this should take place? He says in every place of worship. In every place of worship. And the first thing we should notice Is that this is supposed to be everywhere this is not just written to one group or one place paul knew that these letters would be spread around to all the different churches in asia galatia ephesus all these places would receive this letter he says in every place of worship everywhere you gather i want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to god free from anger and controversy it reminds me of what paul told the corinthian church another passage Similar to this, also writing about Timothy, actually, where he says, that's why I have sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of how I follow Christ Jesus, just as I teach in all the churches wherever I go. This is what Paul was doing. He was sharing information with Timothy, but it was for all sorts of churches, and these letters would get copied and passed around church to church to church. They would build their own library of their different letters. That's how we got the New Testament so that they could understand, okay, what is Paul telling the church in Galatia? All right, well, what can we use from that here? How can we learn from that over here? What is Paul telling the church in Rome? How can we learn from that over here? And so these would spread around, and they treasured these letters, and they learned from them. But this was the consistent teaching that Paul would give wherever he went in the churches. What's important here is not only what is here, we're going to dig into that, but also what is not here. See, God cares about how we do things in our worship gatherings, but not necessarily the way that people care about our worship gatherings. Notice that Paul doesn't say anything here about the style of music in the church service or the style of governance in the church, or the number of elders, or the number of deacons, or the size of the church, or the ratio of staff to congregant, or what musical instruments should be used, although that would become a controversy over the next 100 years in the early church. He doesn't describe the order of service, or what creative elements should be used in the service. Why not? Because those are all preferences. Some of those preferences could be considered best practices. Sometimes it's better to use this preference in this culture and this preference in that culture. There are are different things that work better at different times. Sometimes we need to change those preferences up just so that they don't become stale. For instance, we have a particular way that we do communion here at First Free Church. But every Good Friday, we completely change that. And we do it a totally different way. If you haven't been a part of that service, it's a wonderful service, a beautiful service. We do communion completely differently. Why do we do it that way? Well, it's to sort of break us out of our routine and get us to think about what we're doing. When we do something the same way over and over and over again, doesn't it kind of become this habit, this routine that we're just going through the motions and we don't connect it to the significance and the meaning that it it just becomes this muscle memory thing where it's like I, I take out the cup, I do the things. And on Good Friday, we do it so differently that it it's special, it's it's different. And so sometimes there's a reason to change something just to just to make it different so that it doesn't become stale because the the specific methodology is not prescribed to us in scripture. Sometimes we have to change the way we do things because the context is different. Missionaries have to do this all the time. When they go to another country, the culture is very different. They're going to adapt a lot of practices. and, And one of us might walk into a church somewhere halfway around the world and see the way they do things and go, whoa, this is strange. But in some cases, that's just because they've adapted it to the culture that they're in. So sometimes preferences have to change because of the context. Next week, we are going to make a small change to the way we practice communion here on a regular basis in our church. And it might be temporary, it might be long-term, I don't know. But we are going to start offering communion at the doors as you leave the church instead of passing the plate like we have so often. Now, why would we do that? Well, in in this case, it's because the context has changed. Before the pandemic, no one really thought much about us taking trays up and down the aisles, passing them down. A dozen people touch the the tray, and by the time you're done, you know, 50 people in one section would touch the same tray, and everybody's kind of touching what everybody else has touched, and it's no big deal. We didn't really care. Well, now we care. <laughs> a lot of people care. We don't want to be touching things a lot of other people have touched. I'm not going to get into contact transmission. I know some of you have researched all of that. I've researched that too. The fact of the matter is there are, I'm seeing some smiles out there. The fact of the matter is there are, there are always going to be some people who come to our church and some visitors who come to our church who are going to be sitting at the end of that row, and they're going to be the last one, and the trays going to be coming to them, and Ugh. I have to touch that after everybody else touched it, and I don't don't know if they're going to get anything from it or not, but we don't want them to feel uncomfortable. So our elders had a conversation about this and said, you know what? We we need to change this practice. Now, you know, during the during the last several months what we've been doing is we've had the the rows blocked off with signs so that you could walk through the row with with an usher and that way only one person touched the tray and all you had to touch was your one stack of cups you know and that worked pretty well until we started to find out that on many of our Sundays we were too full in here with social distancing to keep those rows closed we even had some people come in look around couldn't find a spot that would work for them and then just left which is terrible and so we opened up the rows so everybody could kind of sit You know, wherever they want to, you know, still kind of distancing as you feel appropriate, but not as blocked off with those rows separated, that presents a problem for communion. How do we do communion if we're not going to pass the trays and we don't have rows that we can walk through with our ushers? So we're changing it. And we're going to try it. And we don't know if it's going to work well, it may work terribly. I don't know. At the end of the service, we're going to have a song. We're going, to, we're going to give you instructions. We're going to invite people to, as they leave, to walk towards the back, and there'll be a station for the bread and a station for the cup, and we, we want it to be sacred. We want, in fact, we want the difference to actually make us think about it more and think about what we're actually doing. But it's something, something different, something that's changed about the church, uh, about the way we do a worship service that wasn't specifically described in Scripture. Paul doesn't ever tell us, here's when you're supposed to do communion. Here's how you're supposed to do it. Have you ever noticed that there are oftentimes that the Bible doesn't prescribe exactly how to do something, but Christians later do? Have you ever noticed that? Where the Bible actually doesn't give us a lot of the how and Christians fill it in, and then that how becomes the way we think we have to do things from now on because that's what we're used to. What did Jesus say about communion distribution? What were Jesus' instructions? As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Monthly? He didn't say. Weekly? He didn't say. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. What were Paul's instructions about communion? Don't do it unworthily, don't be selfish, do it together. But who's allowed to distribute the elements? He didn't say. At the beginning, the middle, or the end of the service? He didn't say here's the thing we often get used to doing things a certain way and when they change we confuse the discomfort of differentness with something being spiritually wrong have you ever felt that way when something changes that we're used to we're so used to this thing and it changes on us we go I don't know if I like that something's wrong with it it feels wrong to me it must be spiritually wrong You know when I felt that way the most was when I first came to First Free Church. And I sat through the worship services and I went, they do things differently here. That's not how I'm used to it. I've been in my last church for almost 10 years. I'm used to doing things a certain way. They do things differently here. I don't know if I like, is that okay? I don't know if that's okay. And I honestly had to go back to my Bible and spend some time in prayer and address my own preconceptions and my own thoughts of the way things should be done and realize, you know what? The Bible doesn't say anything about that. guess it's okay. We have to check our preconceptions because oftentimes it's the differentness that creates a discomfort in us and we confuse that for a spiritual problem when really it's just a preference. The Bible actually gives us a tremendous amount of freedom for the how of Church. At the same time, there are universal principles, biblical principles that every church should follow. And we're going to see a lot of those principles in this letter to 1 Timothy. In fact, this letter to Timothy could be subtitled Lessons for Leaders to Teach Their Churches because that's really what Paul is doing. He's giving Timothy a a whole bunch of instructions and then he says, teach the people these things. Instruct the people with these things. I want them to learn these things. And so there are certain principles in here that you're going to see we're going to take and we're going to apply and we're going to learn from. And there's a lot of instruction that Paul just leaves flexible and open. And there's a lot of how that is left to the local church within its culture and its context. One of the truths we can see in this passage here that we're studying today is actually the fact that we're dealing with two different groups of people. Paul addresses some of his instruction to the men and some of his instruction to the women. And as you read through the Bible, you'll notice that those are the only categories available to you. The Bible says that God made them male and he made them female. Biologically, genetically, chromosomally, there's male and there's female. Those are the the designs that God has worked into the human race. And as you know, today it's become popular to experiment with the idea of a fluid gender spectrum. And some of that is a backlash against unhealthy stereotypes and cultural expectations of what a man should be like and what a woman should be like but some of it also is just a rebellious spirit that's eager to do the opposite of what God designed people to do, which is not surprising. Fallen people are going to fall. If we, if we want to rebel against what God designed us to be and God designed us to have male and female, then naturally there are going to be people that are going to say, well, how can I subvert that even if it's subconsciously? And many people are actively rebelling against God and his design while disguising it in the terminology of rights. But just because you have a a right to do something or an ability to do something doesn't necessarily mean that it's healthy or wise to do. The Bible teaches that there are two distinct genders, men and women. There's male and female, if you want to get biological about it. And that those types are fundamentally different from each other while also sharing a tremendous amount in common. There's, There's a ton of similarity there, but there are also some distinct differences especially at the extremes. And the Bible acknowledges this. And so sometimes you'll have instructions specifically to men, and sometimes you'll have instructions specifically to women. And one of the questions that's been asked a lot is, um, which one's better? Are men better? Are women better? And, and I think I can answer that question for you today. Women are better. at being women. And men are better at being men because that's how God designed them. But here's the thing, being a man should not be confused with any cultural stereotype of masculinity. When I was growing up, I loved watching John Wayne movies I think I've seen just about every movie John Wayne ever made. And every time you watch a John Wayne, anybody else out there, you watch John Wayne movies? Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Some people really big fans. Every time you watch a John Wayne movie for about 15 minutes, you feel really macho afterward. You know what I'm talking about? Just walk around calling people Pilgrim. Like... That's a John Wayne thing. You just, you you watch that movie and you almost feel like you're John Wayne when you're done. You've got this idea of what does masculinity look like and what does it mean to be a man? You know, and and he's that representation of you uh, for you for the next 15 minutes. But the thing is, movies set this expectation in our minds and our culture and TV shows and books and all these other things set an expectation for us of, of what this should be stereotypically, but movies are not real and movies are not the ultimate source of truth. If you want to know what a man should be like, read the book from the guy that made men. If you want to know what a woman should be like, read the book from the God who created women. If you take God's word and you look at all the passages that speak to men and what they are supposed to do, you will have a picture of what a biblical man is supposed to look like, and everything else is just preferences and culture. And the same thing goes for women. There are a lot of layers that we have added to the stereotype of what a man needs to be or what a woman needs to be. And honestly, a lot of what's going on in our culture right now is a backlash against those extra things we've added and said, if you want to be a man, you got to be like this. you got to be like John Wayne. Or if you want to be a woman, you've got to be like this. And in many cases, the backlash is, is not unwarranted. It just goes too far because we have added layers to what the Bible says about what a biblical man should be like and what a biblical woman should be like. The Bible does say that God created men and women, male and female. The Bible does say that men and women are different. And because they're different, God gives them some unique instructions. And that's a wonderful thing. I mean, aren't you thankful that in the Bible, we don't only find instructions for men? or only find instructions for women. There's instructions for men and for women and a whole lot for both. And honestly, most of the instruction for men can also apply to the women, but it's uniquely directed to the men. And most of the instruction to the women can also apply to the men, but it's uniquely directed to the women because God cares about both, because both are made in his image and he wants to see both flourish and thrive together. And that's a part of what this letter is about. How can men and women with all of their differentness gifted by God in that way come together and worship together in a beautiful way, honoring the God that made them the way he designed them to be? And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 8, In every place I want men to pray. In every place I want men to pray. I think it's very interesting here that Paul only wants the men to pray and not the women and this is for every place of worship remember only men should be doing the prayers and worship services I have the undivided attention of every woman in the room right now (laughs) most of the men is that true is that a true statement how do you know if it's a true statement I want to do a little sidebar right now on biblical interpretation and give you some keys to studying the Bible, to how you can understand when an interpretation is right and when an interpretation is wrong. Because so much of what we get wrong in our Christian culture is when we read a verse and someone who wrote a blog article has done a really good job convincing us of thinking, well, that that must be what that means. When the reality is it's one possible interpretation of many possible interpretations. And how do we start to find out what's the right one? And I'm not here to tell you that that's always an easy thing to do, but there are some things that you can learn about studying the Bible that will help you as we go through the rest of this series and will help you in your own personal Bible study. I'm going to give you four keys to biblical interpretation. You might want to write these down. Uh, You might want to take a picture once we get them all up on the screen, but I want you to learn these four keys that are going to help us to understand is what I just said about Paul's instruction to men praying in the church. Is that true or is that a false interpretation? The first one I want to tell you about is consider the context of the instruction. The context of the instruction. Is there something unique about the audience or the historical setting that should impact the way we interpret this instruction? Now, in this case, Paul is pretty clear that this is for every place of worship. This is not something that you find any tell there that would tell you, okay, this is just for this community. This is for every place of worship. Everybody is supposed to do this. I don't see anything that would tell me that this is purely contextual. Okay, so what's the next one? The next one is consider the original language. Is there something about these words in the text, especially the original Greek that, that they were written in? Is there something that we can learn from that will tell us how this was used outside of the Bible so we better understand how Paul was probably using it at that time? This, by the way, is one reason why virtually all modern translations of the Bible, the main ones anyway, are better than the older translations of the Bible. The reason for that is the more we dig and the more manuscripts we uncover and the more literature we uncover from from 2,000 years ago, the better understanding we have of the ancient languages. We understand Koine Greek infinitely better now than we did 100 years ago. And so our translations are better now than they were 100 years ago. And so the, the reality is that as we get, ironically, as we get farther away, because of all of the research and study that is done and the new manuscripts that are dug up, we actually have a more accurate and faithful picture of the original text than we did 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And it's not because anybody did anything wrong. It's because they did not have the massive scope of information available to them when they were doing their earlier translations. They did not have databases where they could look up how this word was used in thousands of different ancient pieces. Of, of literature to be able to have a better sense for what might this word have meant. I'll give you one quick example of this. Uh, the word ekklesia, many of you may know, ekklesia is the word that's used for the church in the New Testament, and, and many a sermon has been given about the significance of the fact that if you take back ekklesia to its root words, ek and kaleo, that it, it means called out, Uh, ek would be out or from, and kaleo means call. And so there is this great rich meaning in the fact that the church is the called out ones, and it's the ekklesia. And every time you see ekklesia, it's the called out ones. But the reality is that for a long time before the New Testament was written, ekklesia had already become a normal word that just meant gathering. It was just a gathering of people. Is it nice that the root words say call and out? Yeah, that's neat. But does it have the same kind of impact or significance that often gets applied to it when literally ecclesia was used for a political gathering and a religious gathering, another gathering of people over here at that time? It's just the standard word they used for a gathering of people. And so sometimes we make the mistake of missing because of that context of the original language what a word might really mean. What might it mean in its historical linguistic context? I don't see anything in this passage here that would give me a strong leading one way or the other about what this means from the historical context linguistically. So let me give you another principle. Consider other similar passages in Scripture. Sometimes a possible interpretation can be crossed off the list just because we look at another place in in the Bible and we see that that contradicts what our other interpretation of this passage must be, so it can't mean that. This is one of the reasons why it's so beneficial to be studying the Bible every day, not just when you come here on Sundays, but on your own. You're building up a memory bank of Scripture so that as you go through life and you encounter different circumstances or, or you're reading a passage and it seems to say something, you're not sure if that's what it means. A lot of times it's that memory bank of Scripture that's going to come up in your head and the Holy Spirit's going to prompt you with one of those and you're going to say, well, I know it can't mean this because the Bible says this. So many, so many of our our false ideas and wrong thinking in the church comes because we look at one part of Scripture and we take a possible interpretation out of it and we didn't bother to check it against the rest of Scripture. You have to take the whole Scripture into account. And this is something that applies very well to 1 Timothy 2.8. In 1 Timothy 2.8, some Some pastors uh, and churches have taken this to mean that women should not be praying in the worship services because, because Paul says men should be praying in the worship services. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says if women are praying or prophesying in the church services, here's how they should do it. So if that's what Paul said to the church in Corinth, is it possible that Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, I only want men to pray in the worship services? I don't think so. He's giving instruction consistently throughout the churches. And so if Paul is saying that in in 1 Corinthians 11, then there's no way that he's saying here, I only want the men to be praying. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking about the fact that he wants men to pray with holy hands, lifted high to God, without anger or controversy. See, I think Paul knew something about men. He knew that the propensity of men, when they don't like something, is to get angry. And to get angry at other men. And they can get jealous and they have egos and they have all these things that they can cause controversy over, and they can get upset and they can feud with each other. And, and they don't necessarily leave that at home when they come to church. If there's something that we don't like, maybe something somebody else did, we we might not leave the church, we might just spread stuff about them or, or make life miserable for them. When we disagree with them on something, or we think they did something to, to slight us. We can get angry, we can cause controversy. And Paul's instruction here is back to unity, back to harmony to the things that we agree on, to the more important things rather than the petty disagreements and the preferences and the ego that might cause us to have friction with each other. He's saying, pray with holy hands lifted high up to God. Holy hands. That means hands that have not done anything to hurt anybody. That means we're not doing anything to harm anyone. We're at peace with each other. Hands that are, that are lifted up high. Now, That brings up another interesting key. This is the fourth key to biblical interpretation I'm going to share with you today. Consider what is the principle and what is the expression of the principle. There are principles and there are expressions of principles. Scripture has many principles for us to learn and live by. And there are also specific expressions that are unique to a, a culture A context and a time. Sometimes Paul will share a principle and then along with it, give these culturally relevant expressions of that principle. Let me give you an example because I want to make sure this makes sense. You know, Paul's writing to one audience at one particular time, and certainly God intends for this to be used for people a long time later. But to the original audience, some of the things Paul wrote made perfect sense. And to us reading his mail 2,000 years later, we read it and go, huh? Really? Is that what I'm supposed to do or I'm not supposed to do that? Why? Why is that such a big thing? You may have picked up on some of that in our text already today. So what's going on here? Let me give you an example from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful, grow to maturity, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace. Then the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet each other with a sacred kiss. How many of you greeted each other with a sacred kiss here at church today? Not too many, I'm guessing. Can you imagine if this was the theme verse for our greeters ministry? And every Sunday you took that long walk from your car to the front door just dreading the sacred kiss. Why don't we do that? Because it's not a part of our culture. This was the expression of a principle. What was the principle? Well, encourage each other. Live in harmony and peace. Greet each other uh, and let peace be with you. When you greet each other, it's supposed to be, hey, we're in this together. We're, we're, whatever in your culture expresses that there is unity, there's harmony, there's peace, that we're encouraging each other, that's what you should do here. In this context, it was a kiss. In some cultures today, it's still a kiss. In Latin cultures, it's still often a kiss. How do we greet each other and show that we mean each other no harm here? What do we do? we shake hands, we hug, we fist bump, we wave. Those are all greetings that would have seemed very strange and out of place to the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago. To them, it was a kiss. To us, it's something different, but there's a principle, and there's a cultural expression of that principle. So if we take this back to what Paul is talking about, he says, I want the men to pray without anger, without controversy, with holy hands lifted high to God, does that mean that every time you pray, you have to lift your hands up? Well, that's how the Jewish people prayed back then. They lifted their hands as they prayed. If you want to do that, that is fine, but that was a cultural expression of that principle. If you want to, you can. You don't have to. Many people do that in worship. There's nothing wrong with that, but the principle here is that there's no anger, no controversy. Our hands are holy. We haven't done anything wrong. We haven't done anything to harm anyone. We haven't done evil to other people. Men, we need to be men of prayer and not anger and controversy of unity, not fighting or causing disagreement in the body of Christ. Now, here at the end, Paul turns his attention to women in the church. It's worth pointing out the fact that Paul assumes men and women are coming together to church and worshiping and learning about God together in the church. And the context here is still all places of worship. So what does he say in verse 9? I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Now, that is a tough passage because there's some very specific instruction here that I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, do we have to follow that? And if we don't follow that, do we just pick and choose what we want to get out of Scripture? So let's apply rule number four of interpretation to this passage. What is the principle here? What's the principle? You got it. Be modest. Wear decent and appropriate clothing. Don't try to draw attention to yourself. That is the principle. What's the expression of the principle? Hairstyle gold or pearl jewelry, expensive clothes. This is the expression in their context of the principle. No braided hair. Does that mean we have to have hair checks at the door now at First Free Church right before the sacred kiss? That's not something we're going to do. The principle is fairly clear here. There is a principle and there is an expression of the principle, and we have to read these ancient texts understanding that and and learning to decipher between the two, and that's going to continue to be important as we study further into 1 Timothy in future weeks. See, in Ephesus at the time, the lifestyles of the Roman elites were starting to infiltrate Ephesian culture, and it was trendy to dress like the elite women of Rome did. We know this from other literature at the time how these these lifestyles and and, uh, hairstyles and fashion was starting to come into Ephesian, And the Ephesian women were trying to dress like the women of Rome who were very promiscuous. They were very sexually open in their lifestyle. And there was a lot of indecency, immodesty, immorality. And so at that time, the, the symbols of that were braided hair and gold and pearl jewelry. It sent this message, I want to be like the promiscuous women of Rome, or at least be seen that way. What's our cultural expression of that principle today? If we were to take that expression forward today, our expression of that might be, don't dress like a pop star. The elite women of Rome today are mostly the singers or celebrities who are desperate for attention. And they're so desperate for attention that they will do crazy things and say crazy things and wear crazy things to get your attention. So they dress as skimpy as possible and they get edgy in their music videos and they wanna be seen as a sex symbol. Why? Because sex sells and it feeds their ego. And just like the Ephesian women were starting to copy the promiscuous lifestyles of the elites of their day, what do little girls today, especially, and and some boys as well, want to dress like today? Raunchy pop stars. It's a a part of the culture, and it's, it's something that's affecting people just like it did in Ephesus. There is nothing new under the sun. This is not new. In fact, I'm not even sure if our culture is as bad as the culture was back in Paul's day. It was pretty bad. We may be getting back there there's nothing new here. One thing I do appreciate about Paul is that he doesn't remove something without giving us something else. So if he's going to say, don't be immodest, don't wear inappropriate clothes or, or anything that's designed to make you look like someone with loose morals, he's going to replace it with something else. And here's what he says in verse 10. He says, for women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. You want to look attractive? serve people. You want to be an attractive person, help people. Do good to others in Jesus' name. Now, let me be clear. The main reason of this verse is not about being attractive to men. Paul says nothing about that here. It's just being attractive in general. If you're devoted to God, then you want to be attractive by the good things you do, not by how you make yourself look. But it does apply to, for instance, women who are looking for a husband and trying to find someone who would be a good husband. If you try to attract a man by dressing provocatively, you're attracting a man who is attracted to the wrong things. And that's not likely to change. And if you want to attract a man who is godly and has good character and is devoted to Christ and cares about people and makes wise choices and would probably be a good husband and father, then get involved in serving. This is advice that I gave Back in college, to many a young person who was just desperate to find someone, get involved in serving. You'll meet better people there (laughs) than where you're going right now. And also doing good and helping other people and being content in that is so much better and more attractive than trying to attract with your looks. If a guy's attracted to you partly because of your heart for serving others and your devotion to God, he's attracted to the right things. And that's not likely to change. But I do want to be clear. That's not ultimately what this verse is about. It it, it can apply there. The principle can apply there. But this verse is is not ultimately about that. Because I want to be clear about this. Paul is not saying, I want women to be modest in their appearance for the sake of the men. That's not what he's saying. Many people have interpreted this this way. But that is not at all what he is saying here. He's not saying, I want women to be modest in their appearance so they don't cause the men to sin by lusting. See, there are two lies that get spread around about this. And and it's, it's big in our Christian culture right now especially. One lie is that it's really all about the men and women have a responsibility to not be immodest because they are leading the men into sin. So then what's the implication when men sin? The woman made me do it. That is literally the oldest excuse in the book and that is not what Paul is saying here. Not at all. Men are responsible for their own thoughts and actions. Now, should women, in keeping with the instruction of the Bible, seek to not be a stumbling block to men? Yes, but not because otherwise they're causing the men to sin, but because the Bible tells them, don't be a a stumbling block. But there's another lie that gets pushed around about modesty in our culture today, which is this. Since women aren't responsible for men's thoughts or behaviors or actions, they should dress however they want and as immodestly as they want. In fact, for you to tell me not to dress however I want is oppression, and you're oppressing me, and so I'm actually gonna go overboard. I'm gonna do the other thing. In fact, I'm gonna post all kinds of pictures about it, because I want you to know just how free and open I am and how, how if you're gonna lust or sin or anything like that, it's completely on you, and you know what? It is on him. It is his own sin, but it's also yours, because Paul specifically says don't dress immodestly, not because of the dude, because of you. Paul doesn't make it about men at all. He's already dealt with the men. Stop anger, stop controversy, pray with holy hands. This is addressed to the women. And here's what he's saying to the women. If you think about this carefully, he's saying, don't find your identity or value or attractiveness in your outward appearance. Make yourself attractive by the good things you do. Literally what he says here is adorn yourself with good works. To adorn means to decorate That's what it means. Decorate yourself, adorn yourself with good works. Has nothing to do with the men at all. When I was a kid, I went through the Iwana program and I had this uniform. Anybody go through Iwana here? I love Iwana. I I absolutely love it. I think everybody should. All kids should go through Iwana. I learned so many Bible verses in Iwana. It was amazing. They still pop into my head. But I had all the uniforms. You know, I had the sparky vest. and I had the the shirt and what used to be called pioneers. And and they had these bars across the shirt that you would add these little medals to. And you'd always, like, stab your finger trying to poke them through there, you know, and get a little blood on you, and it was just part of the experience. <laughs> but over time, you would decorate yourself with these things that, that showed, I completed this, account, this assignment, I completed this section, I completed these verses, I completed this task that I'm supposed to do. And so it became this decoration, this adornment of here's the good stuff that I do. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, don't look at at your beauty and your hairstyle and your jewelry and your accessories and your car and all these extra things, the trappings of life, as the thing that make you really attractive and decorate you well and make it look like you've got it all together. Look at the good that you're doing. What are you doing for Jesus? How are you serving him? How are you helping others in his name? That's what makes you really attractive. Not that you shouldn't care about your looks. Your body is a temple for God. The Bible talks about that. You should care about it and take care of it. But focus more on the good you can do for others than how you look for others. The reality is this is good advice for men and women. In fact, both are good for both. One is clearly targeted at the men. One is clearly targeted at the women, and that makes sense. But both of us need to learn from both of these things. To have unity and peace, to not get angry with each other, to not cause controversy, to not care so much about how we look or outward appearances. I mean, what is it for the guys? Cars, smoker, guns, I don't know. Whatever your thing is, we like to look good for other people. We like to make ourselves attractive in different ways. We like to make other people jealous. But what does Paul say? Don't care so much about those things. You want to make yourself attractive? Men and women, do it by the good things that you're doing. Let me pray for you. Jesus, this is... This is such important stuff for us to go through together, and yet such hard stuff sometimes to understand because we we read some of the writings of Paul, and I love the fact that Peter actually said in one of his letters, the words of Paul are really hard to understand, (laughs) and it's so true. And yet if we will take the time to dig into them, what we see is is nothing that we need to be ashamed of or afraid of, but it's something that's just good advice for living, and it's it's what helps us to understand the way you want us to live because you designed us, Lord. God, my prayer for the men and women in this room and the men and women who are watching online is that we would take your word, we would absorb it, and we would live it out this week. And maybe it means changing how much we prioritize the way we look, the clothes we wear, the accessories, whatever it is, not because those things are necessarily wrong, but because they've become a priority in our lives over you and the things you want us to do. Maybe it means less of an emphasis on how we appear to other people and more of an emphasis and more of our time dedicated to serving other people. Maybe it means giving up on some bitterness that we've held on to. Some anger, some controversy and letting that go. So that we in the family of God can come together and pray together and worship together. And not allow our disagreements, our, our differences to come between us. To go back to our first love. To go back to the gospel teaches us that we are one in Christ, which teaches us that so many other things pale in comparison to the saving power of Jesus, who has done more to forgive us and set us free than we could ever hold against any other person. God, help us to live out these truths this week. And in your name we pray.